Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, December 18th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss part 65 of his series, 100 Proofs That the Israelites Were White. In our last presentation, we continued our discussions of themes which are found in the epistles of Paul of Tarsus with the scope of the covenant and the family of the faith, as they certainly do consist of the white European nations to whom he had brought the gospel of Christ. Now, we shall continue with a discussion of the word church and what the true church, as it is described by scripture, truly is in the definitions of the words used to describe church or words that are translated as church. A church certainly is not a collection of mere believers congregating in some building. That is actually something which is better described by the word synagogue rather than church. So this is the 82nd proof in our series of 100 proofs. And it's really the 83rd because of an error that I had made early on in proof 37 where I forgot to increment the number and had two proof 37s. So we might end up with 101 proofs or even more as we continue the series. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so so here we're on to um, what is a church, and, and this is something that's really abused with mistranslations, and um, as we'll get on, that apparently Peter and Paul founded the Catholic Church, and, and it's used to basically legitimize the authority and the power, and that basically Christ came for the purpose of setting up an organization or, or a church, right, and, and that's what we should have, we should all just go to these buildings and and basically be under uh, whatever you want to call him a preach uh, a priest sorry a father or, or whatever and re- really it, what it does is it completely takes away the the whole marriage of Yahweh with the children of Israel and, and the purpose of Christ coming for his bride right to die to release us from the penalty of death and then that he could remarry us and once you comprehend that that then you realize all these, um, you know, false doctrines just fall apart and you realize that the whole children of Israel are the church, right? Or whenever we meet with the body of Christ and that that essentially is what it's all about. And also that nobody else can come into our church, no other people, no other races. It's just for us, right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely. And, and we will see that here this afternoon or this evening, I should say. This concept of church has been basically wrong from the beginning. The, the, among the early so-called Christian fathers, and I shouldn't even say among because it's, it's the greater portion of them, were men who were steeped in Gnosticism and Platonism, and they took, even if they did not take the precepts of 
those philosophies into Christianity. They still took the methods of those philosophies into Christianity. And they reasoned with Christianity from a philosophical perspective. And that caused them, and, and today it's called spiritualizing something, right? That they took these material concepts or, or these material phenomena from the Old Testament and turned them into philosophical contexts in the New Testament whereby the word father really didn't mean father. The word sperma or offspring really didn't mean one's natural children, that it meant something else, something, as the modern Judeo-Christians said, are quote-unquote spiritual. But that's not what Yahweh God had intended. That's not what the Bible says. And in Scripture, references to the fathers mean references to the patriarchs of the children of Israel, as it's the children of Israel who are being addressed, even if they're called Corinthians or Romans or Galatians. It's still the children of Israel being addressed, and all of the terms of the apostles in their epistles are built on that concept that these truly are the scattered children of Israel who they were addressing. It, it's That is the promises in the prophets and that is the profession of the apostles. So the church is not a body of mere believers that comes from all races. The church is actually a body of Christians which comes from the children of Israel who are in the world. That is the church of God. And we hope to demonstrate here that here this evening. Yeah, and as um, Paul was traveling around, um, you know, the European countries and, um, you know, sending his uh, own disciples like like Timothy, etc., he was setting up all these assemblies, right? He wasn't trying to create this this great hierarchy or great organization all he wanted was them to study themselves form their own christian communities that that's what it was all about for him right it, not um and nowhere was there like a pope or anything like that right i'm sorry absolutely that the that this a lot of what i present here i had actually written perhaps 15 years ago in an essay that's still available at Christagenia called Misconceptions Concerning Paul and the Church. Now, because of our purposes here in demonstrating that the Israelites were white, I've only taken, taken out the relevant portions of that paper, and I've rewritten them to a great degree so that I can stress this point, and I've added a lot of scripture to it, so that's what we're going to see today, is a rewrite of that portion of that paper that I did years ago. But the rest of the paper explains how a church or a Christian ecclesia is supposed to function, because the apostles didn't leave behind and never described a megalithic church 
single church with with a body, an organized body of ecclesiastical officers going up through bishops into cardinals and the papacy. No, these things were added by men who were politically minded men who had political aspirations to control Europe as early as the time of Constantine the Great and onward. And it didn't materialize until the time of Justinian and the Edict of Justinian, as we shall see here. So, what Paul really left behind, because he didn't name a successor, Peter didn't name a successor. It seems that Paul intended for Timothy to pick up his ministry after he died. But we don't have any records of anything that Timothy may have done after he's with Paul in Rome and up to the time when Paul is executed. So Timothy was a free man. And in 2 Timothy, Paul had asked Timothy to come to him in Rome, and Timothy did. So in Paul's last two epistles, no, I'm sorry, Colossians and Philemon, we see that Timothy is with Paul when Paul wrote those epistles. But after Paul is executed by Nero, and we're rather certain that Paul is executed by Nero, two years after he arrived in Rome, because Luke explained in the 28th chapter of Acts that Paul had lived in Rome two years. Paul was never released. We can account for every single one of his epistles and his entire ministry up to Acts chapter 28, exactly when it was written. Paul wasn't released. And according to all of the early Christian writers, Paul had lost his life in the time of Nero which at the latest, if I'm not mistaken, was 66 AD or perhaps early 67. But Paul more than likely lost his life in 63 as he arrived in Rome in 61 and Nero was on on a tear against Christians. Nero, at that time, was heavily persecuting Christians, as we read in the pages of Tacitus, the Roman historian, and Luke said that Paul stayed in Rome for two years in his own hired house. So, Paul had expected, when he wrote Second Timothy, he had expected to lose his life soon. He had already defended himself before the emperor, as he explained in his other epistles, Ephesians and I think Colossians also. And in 2 Timothy, when Paul wrote that epistle, he expected to not live very much longer. And he didn't. So, where are the successors? And where... What became of Timothy? We will never know what became of Timothy. We have no legacy. We have no documents. And if there are any other successors after Timothy, where are they? They were all martyred. 
all of the early Roman Christians, as many as Rome, as many as Nero, and, and his successors could get their grips on, were martyred. They were driven underground, any surviving Christians, and they left us no records. And if you read the early Christian writers on the subject, sometimes they conflict with one another. Their traditions are in conflict with one another or differ from one another. And they're not complete. Their statements are far from complete. That There is no solid record of any succession from Peter and Paul down to any pope. And even the office of Pope wasn't established for another 500 years. It's all a, Catholic, a Roman Catholic fable. So that that's a digression from my notes. I probably repeated some things that I'm going to state a little later, but that's in a nutshell. The Roman Catholic Church is not the church. It's never been the church, ever. Maybe at times in its early development, it represented the, the people of God, and popes had sought to do well, but the, or, the organization itself was not developed or even suggested by the apostles. The apostles left behind an independent collection of Christian assemblies, each one answering only to the word of God. And each one supervised, the word bishop actually comes through Latin and Greek, it, it's a Greek word, episcopus, which the Romans had changed in their spelling to episcopus, and that became biscop in Old English. I could probably say it better than I could pronounce it, or spell it better than I could pronounce it. It's like B-I-S-C-E. OP or something like that. And, and that became our modern word bishop. So our modern word bishop comes straight from the Greek word episcopus or episcopus, which is to have oversight of something or to supervise it. The assemblies which Paul left behind, and we're not getting into that here, the assemblies which Paul left behind were to select or elect and that word is wrongly translated as ordain in in the King James New Testament because those translators sought to uphold the structure of the Anglican Church. They were working for King James I. They wanted to support that Anglican Church structure. So they did a few dishonest things in their translation in order to make it look like the Anglican Church structure was legitimate. And one of those things was they changed a word meaning to vote for in Greek, which is kairotonio, which is to stretch out the hand in voting. That's how the Greeks used the word kairotonio. And they changed that to ordain when they translated the book of Acts. And that's completely dishonest. The uh, people of the assemblies were to choose their own bishop from among their elders. And they didn't answer to him. He was their supervisor, but he really answered to them. And they were to choose their own servants or ministers from 
from their own population. That's what the apostles left behind. They were all intended to be their own independent entities. No Christian community has any right in Scripture to lord over another Christian community. None whatsoever. So, basically, that's in the rest of my paper from which this discussion is originally derived. But that will not be explained in detail in this discussion. I don't know if you have anything else to say. First, I was going to say, out of all the emperors, Nero would have been the worst of them all for someone to profess Christianity to, right? Because, yeah, he he was basically... um, uh, I don't, the words to describe it, he was just every, everything against Christianity, right? He, he was a homosexual, he was with prostitutes, he was, he was marrying uh, multiple people. He would have been the worst emperor. When you compare to some of the other emperors who, you know, weren't Christian but might have been uh, more receptive to it, right? But, um, Bill, I wanted to ask you, what, what's your um, thoughts on Constantine? Do, do you think that, you know, when he conquered uh, Rome and, and tried to assemble it, do you think a lot of the blame can be put on him? Or, or do you think he just did the best he could to try and make Christianity legitimate and, and it's more the people who got the power as, um, you, know, you know, bishops and stuff like that? Or do you think it's all Constantine's fault? Yeah, you know, Constantine himself was just a tool. But, but let me say that first, Constantine, his mother was a a princess, a British princess. His father was a Roman officer in Britain. And he had come from Britain to raise an army to take to become the emperor, to make himself the emperor. So he must have ran into Christianity in Britain. The first British Christian kingdom was in the middle of the second century and even the early Roman Catholic Church councils had acknowledged that there were Christians in Britain who were not Roman Christians at a very early time who were not Roman Catholic right at a very early time they understood that there were Christians in Britain even before the Romans had accepted Christianity. And on the, on, on another perspective, there's the letter of Pliny. Pliny the Younger was the Roman governor of Bithynia, which is on the coast of the Black Sea. And he was the governor, I believe it was in the time of the Emperor Trajan. And he wrote a letter to Trajan because they were persecuting Christianity at that time and trying to exterminate it, Christianity was very hostile to the Roman Empire. And like you said, Nero was, he was psychotic. He was, he married, he married a boy at one point, according to historical sources. He married a boy that he castrated and turned into a woman. So, allegedly. So, If Nero truly was as bad as some of the historical sources state that he was, you're right, he certainly was the worst emperor to have at the development of Christianity. But 50 years after Nero, 
Pliny the, Pliny the Younger had written to Trajan, that were, there were so many thousands of Christians in Bithynia that he was afraid that he was going to have to execute them all in order to suppress Christianity. That's how successful Christianity had been in Europe in its early years, and that's the extent to which Rome had attempted to suppress it. It's my opinion that by the time of Constantine, he realized that they couldn't stop the growth of Christianity. So yes, he wanted to embrace it in order so that he could control it. That's my opinion. I can't prove that. I can't crawl back into Constantine the Great's head 1,700 years ago. But the result was his choosing of particular bishops to come to a council at Nicaea, and his controlling of that council in determining what their final doctrines would be. He he may not have had full control of it, but he had a good influence over it. And and while I can't prove that in in the council itself, although there are clear records of his influence in that council, the end result is that Christianity was structured in a way so as to mimic the function of the empire. And by the time of Justinian, 300 years, no, I'm sorry, 200 years later, edicts were passed, Justinian's laws codified the Bishop of Rome as the ecclesiastical primate of the empire which had the effect of elevating the Bishop of Rome above kings. And that is how the papacy was born in Europe. I don't know if that answers Yeah, that would make sense if um, Constantine's father came there to uh, raise an army so that he could name himself emperor, then his son Constantine would inherit that ambition, right, to be the emperor. I believe so, yes. Why else would he raise an army and, and, and go to the continent? The Roman Empire was already falling apart. And, and the emperors were only military rulers that they weren't truly inherited. They didn't truly inherit anything. They, they were only men who could convince the most soldiers to follow them so that they could be emperor. Now, of course, they had to be good rhetoricians and good tacticians and and magnanimous personalities in order to be able to do that. But that's what the, the whole series of Roman emperors essentially were over 300 years, were, were military generals that were able to convince soldiers to follow them, that they should be the emperor, and, and go out and defeat any army that that confronted them, that opposed them and any other general that opposed them. So after Nero died, there was one year where there were four emperors, or perhaps Nero was assassinated, 67 AD, I believe it was, and 
in the year of four emperors. It's called that, but it was really like 15 months. I'm sorry, Nero died in 68, a little later than I thought. So, a little later than I remembered. So, so after he died, there was a 15-month period where Galba was the emperor, succeeded Nero, and he was only emperor for about nine months, I think. And, and then Otho succeeded him, and or, or maybe Galba was the emperor for less than nine months, and Otho succeeded him. Otho was emperor for about six months, and then Vitellius succeeded Otho, and Vitellius was only the emperor for about three months. And... Vespasian came from Jerusalem. He left his son Titus in Jerusalem to wage that war there, and he traveled with a good portion of his troops to Rome so that he could become the emperor. And he became the emperor. So, yeah, so that was that was the cutoff point where now it was just military generals, right? It, it and it no longer was like Nero just it, um you know inherited because of the. Uh, Julius Claudian line blood, right? And from then it was just basically generals, as, as you just said, who became the Roman emperors from then on, right? Right. From that time on, it was only generals. There was a succession with Vespasian where his son Titus was able to secede him, and then Titus's brother Domitian, who had heavily persecuted Christians. It, it persecuted Christians. It was Domitius who had the Apostle John in exile. So, so Domitian succeeded his brother Titus. But after that, I, I, if I, my memory serves me correctly, which often it doesn't anymore, that was the last family which managed to hold on to the empire for any duration of time. After that, it was just one general after another for the next 300 years, perhaps, 350 years. So I'm, I'm a little wrong about the time scale. Galba was only emperor for six months, and Vi- Otho, who followed him, was only emperor for about three months. And after that, it was Vitellius, and Vitellius managed to remain emperor for not quite three months. So, and then Vespasian. So that's the year of four emperors, because you had those four emperors in about, in just about a year, probably a little more than a year. That's found in Tacitus, the, the best account of that in the histories which is only a history of the year of those four emperors, basically. Okay, with that, we should probably get started with what is a church? Unless you have something else. No, that's fine. Let's get cracking. Here we are not going to digress at length on what a Christian church is not, except to mention that priests, in the sense of an officer of a church organization, are not found in Christian writings until the 4th century A.D. And you could read Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, Origen, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus. You won't find any mention of a Christian priest. They only talk about 
pagan priests or Levitical priests. In the New Testament, every man is a priest of God in the sense that he serves God by loving his brethren and keeping the commandments. But once Christianity began to be accepted by Rome, a new class of Christian priests developed, and pagan temples began to be converted for use into church buildings. And a lot of pagans try to say that Christianity is pagan because of what the Catholic Church does with its liturgies and its rituals. And that's true, but that's not Christianity. That was never Christianity. That's Roman paganism, which took the name of Christianity. Once the Emperor Justinian created the office of Pope, eventually nuns, orders of monasteries, a college of cardinals, and a hierarchical centralized organization, which conducted or supervised the ordination of priests and bishops, that's when that all developed. None of that developed before then. You did have a monastic lifestyle. You did have monasteries in Egypt and Ethiopia for a time. And they were the first monasteries that were at least marginally Christian. But there were no monasteries in Europe until perhaps the 11th or 12th centuries, until rather late in time. While many of these institutions were useful or helpful in medieval society and did things which are useful to us today, none of them are necessarily biblical or required by Christianity. They are actually anti-Christian in several ways because they set up authorities over men which the scriptures do not advocate or support and in some cases even refute or condemn. And and let me qualify myself. There were no monasteries on the mainland of Europe until the 11th or 12th centuries. There were monasteries in Ireland, I believe, and perhaps in Britain at an earlier time, but especially in Ireland. But they weren't, the monasteries of Ireland were not Roman Catholic. They didn't become The Irish didn't become Roman Catholic until the 13th century. There were Celtic Christians, and they were Christian, but they were never Roman Catholic. So there's, history's never black and white, right? It's always more complicated than just a simple statement. Wherever the word church appears in the King James Version and other translations of the New Testament, The Greek word is ecclesia. The ecclesia is, according to Liddell and Scott, an assembly of the citizens regularly summoned. By itself, the word does not signify or describe a building or any organization with a systematized hierarchy, but is rather simply the assembly itself doesn't matter where they assemble. In the Bible, the word refers to those of the children of Israel who are summoned by Yahweh their God. So, 
the first appearance of the word in the Greek Septuagint is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where in Brenton's translation it is appropriately rendered as assembly. And we read, even the things that happened in the day in which you stood before the Lord our God, in Koreb, in the day of the assembly, that's the word ecclesia, for the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, and let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days which they live upon the earth, and they shall teach their sons. According to the BibleWorks version 10 software, the word ecclesia appears 114 times in the New Testament and 103 times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word from which it is most often translated is kahal. And it is kahal which appears in that passage of Deuteronomy. There is another Hebrew word meaning assembly or congregation, which is edah. And that is also often translated into Greek as synagogue or synagogue, which is not a Jewish word. It is a word from classical Greek. The word kahal in its various forms appears in the Old Testament on 162 occasions and da on 172 occasions. As a verb, Kahal is often gather, and as a noun, assembly or congregation. Interestingly, in the promise that Jacob's seed would become a company of nations, the Hebrew word for company is kahal, and the phrase could be read as a congregation of nations. Both words, kahal and Adah are translated as company in various other passages. Among several other Hebrew words which are translated as assemble, as a verb, there is tzak or zak. It's transliterated sort of like T-S-A apostrophe A-Q or Z-A apostrophe A-Q. And Zach means to call together. This is the word we see in Second Samuel chapter 20, where we read, Then said the king to Amasa, Assemble, or call together, that verb Zach, Assemble me the men of Judah within three days, and be thou here present. The Septuagint translated this word in that passage and elsewhere with the Greek word boao. And that's a verb which in this context means to call for or to shout out for. It is in this sense that the ancient Greeks had used the word ecclesia. A word which, as it is explained in the lexicons, developed from a similar noun, 
ekletos. In turn, ekletos is derived from the verb ekkalio. And ekkalio is a compound word derived from the preposition ek, which is of or from, and the verb kaleo, which is to call or summon. And in fact, kaleo, K-A-L-E-O, is certainly the word from which we have our English word call. This is a typical pattern in the development of Greek words that ekkalio becomes ekkletos as a noun and then as a slightly more specialized noun as ekklesia. That's a typical pattern. Likewise, the word kletos is primarily defined by Liddell and Scott as invited and then as called out or chosen. So, Ekletos is an assembly of those who are invited, called, or chosen for some purpose or reason, and that is the word which gives us ecclesia. So Liddell and Scott primarily define ecclesia as an assembly of the citizens regularly summoned, and then they add, after a comma, the legislative assembly. This also reflects the political systems of the various Greek states. And even if the calling in the Bible is slightly different, the, I should say, the reason for calling in the Bible is slightly different. The meaning of the word is the same. An Ethiopian or a Chinaman could not have expected acceptance in an ecclesia in Sparta or in Athens, just as he happened to venture into the city, if he even got that far. He could not take part in the ecclesia. Neither has Christ invited any of them, as he never knew them. You have to be invited into an ecclesia. You can't just show up. Yeah, so for for the Greeks, it was more of a political system, right? Either you had to be uh, one of the uh, nobles or the equivalent, or you had to own some kind of property to be uh, allowed to in to vote or or to be royalty, something like that, right? But in the Bible, it's more about uh, coming together on the Sabbath and and reading the scriptures, right? Well, well, right. But my point is that in, that was the, that, that was a synagogue. That was where they had, and we're going to distinguish between those words as we continue. Because it's important, you have both an ecclesia in the Old Testament, and you have a synagogue in the Old Testament. And the synagogue is just a place, a building, where people showed up, and if they showed up and sat down, they would get to hear the the recitations of the law and the prophets and the interpretations thereof, which were offered by the priests. So anybody in reality could show up 
at a synagogue and just sit down and listen. But the ecclesia is a group of people that were called for a certain intention. And being called for a certain intention, they were chosen for that purpose. An ecclesia in Athens was a political unit and to participate, you had to be first on the citizenry rolls. You had to be on the citizenship, rolls of citizenship that were maintained at Athens. And according to the laws of the Athenians, and this is expressed in the classical Greek writers, I believe in Thucydides, but it may have been someone else, or or that I had read, some other ancient classical writer that I had read, but I believe it's Thucydides, you had to be from one of the original founding families of the Athenians, of Athens, and you had to be a male, and you had to be a property holder in order to participate in the Ecclesia, which was the, it was the political organ of the democracy of Athens. It's how they ran their government. They would debate things in the ecclesia and by the preponderance of a majority they would make what decisions that they should do in order to guide the course of the city and and their policy. So if you weren't an original from an original Athenian family, and a male and a landholder, you weren't invited into that assembly. Now, I believe it was Thucydides that did complain that some people had moved into Athens and bought their way onto the citizenship roles. And, of course, that's always going to happen in any government of man. We're going to have people figuring out ways to sneak in. I mean, look at how many illegal immigrants we have in, in our countries today. And, and that's always been a problem. But you're not going to sneak in on God. You might sneak into Athens. You might bribe some corrupt official into getting your name on those rolls. But you're not going to sneak in on God. And we're going to see that here. So in the New Testament, the word synagogue appears 43 times. And it is almost always used in the same sense as it was in the Old Testament. Of a gathering for religious purposes related to the ceremonial readings of the law. But the synagogue was a building, as we shall see. In a Christian context, the word chosen to describe the gathering of Christians for mostly those same purposes, but also for the purposes of community, is always called the ecclesia, never a synagogue. The word synagogue, or synagogue in Greek, is a secular word, I believe it first appears in the writings of Plato, which merely refers to the place itself, since it is a compound formed from three Greek words, soon, which is properly a preposition, meaning in company with, 
or together with. Ago, which is a verb, which means primarily to lead or to carry or fetch or bring. And gay, which is earth. It's the word that we get geo, our prefix geo from in geometry or geography. So gay is earth, and in this context, it means land or ground. So suna go gay, soon ago gay, is a secular word which can be interpreted to refer to any group of people which are led together to a particular place or for some re- for some reason or another. And they aren't necessarily led together in an organized way. They're just compelled to go to a particular place to be with a group of people for some reason or another. And that, that definition more accurately describes the purposes of Christian, Christian churches throughout recent history. They might say that they are churches, but they function like synagogues. Just a place where people go congregate to hear a priest. In contrast, an ecclesia is comprised of people who are, who assemble because they are invited, having been chosen. That accords with what Paul had written in Romans chapter 8, where he said, according to the King James Version, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. You can't separate being one of the called from being one of the predestinated. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So in order for one to be of the ecclesia, one must be of the those who are invited to be Christians. One must first have been predestinated. That's the purpose of God, as Paul states in Romans chapter 9, the purpose of God according to election. Where is that election? Where is that calling? There's no separate calling in Christ different from the calling which is described in the prophets. To be predestinated means that you are among the descendants of the ancient Israelites who were promised this inheritance in Christ in the Old Testament because, as Paul also said here in Romans chapter 8, you must first be, also be one of those whom he foreknew. 
and the scriptures attest that he only foreknew those same children of Israel. So, being predestinated and being foreknown, then you must be called or invited into the fellowship. And Paul is relating the fact that it is only the predestinated and the foreknown who are the called. Moreover, only they are justified and only they are glorified. So if um, any non-whites got together in Christ's name, it's nothing, right? (laughs) They're just the enemy. And if any sneak in to our congregations, then they're just infiltrators, right? Peter talks about them as spots in our feast of charity, right? Hiding amongst Absolutely. Both Peter and Jude describe them as in that same manner as spots in our feast of charity. Men cannot change the calling of God. Your feelings can't change God. Christ told his disciples, I know whom I have chosen, and you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Peter called Christians a chosen race in his first epistle. If they were of mixed races, he could not have called them that. So in order to establish the identity of the invited, we shall read a series of passages found in Messianic prophecies from Isaiah, beginning with chapter 42. And we're probably going to read various passages up through chapter 49. This is so important that Yahweh God had Isaiah repeat it over and over again. That's how important it is. And Christ himself had quoted from these very same passages on many different occasions. From Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the nations. I won't read Gentiles. I will read nations. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall await for his law, those scattered Israelites." Far away shall await for his law. And that's the commandments which are found in Christ. Thus saith Yahweh God, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth, and that which comes out of it, He that gives breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein, I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, to give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, that that is, the nations of the children of Israel, as we shall see, as we shall see, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now, we have already explained at length in these presentations, that these are 
the children of Israel in their captivity. And at the beginning of his ministry, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, Christ had announced that this is what he had come to fulfill, to open the eyes of the blind. Then, a little further on, in that same chapter of Isaiah, we we read a verification of that. We can't stop here and make our own interpretation. We have to read the entire chapter, or the entire passage. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not, and I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things I will do unto them, and not forsake them. Then, just a little further on, because I'll skip verse 17. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect? And blind as Yahweh's servant, seeing these things, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this, and he's referring to the children of Israel, he's not referring to anyone else, the same children of Israel that he had mentioned at the beginning of this prophecy. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivers for a spoil and none saith restore. These are the called and the chosen, the children of Israel in captivity. There are many other assemblies, in the sense of the word synagogue, which call themselves churches. But only the children of Israel can comprise the ecclesia. I don't know if you have anything you might want to add to that before we move on to Isaiah chapter 43, where we will see these things repeated. Yeah, and Christ also said that right in a simplified way, wherever two or more uh, assemble in my name uh, that that's essentially the body of Christ right which would be a church as well right but it has to be children of Israel it can't be anywhere else or it can't be a mixture you know like some whites might think oh okay well if we have um, you know 10 children of Israel and a nigger there then then it's okay if he's there but it's not right it's absolutely not he he is I'm sorry it it begins in the later chapters of Isaiah chapter 41, but it's all through Isaiah chapter 41 that this is addressing the children of Israel. And it begins with the admonishment in Isaiah chapter 41 verses 13 and 14 to fear not thou worm Jacob and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And and it continues to prophecy. And it says that I, w- I will plant 
in the wilderness, the cedar, the shittah tree, and the myrtle, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of Yahweh has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. And it continues on to chastise them for their idolatry. And then we read at the end of chapter 41, The first shall say to Zion, Behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word, and we go right into verse, to chapter 42, where Yahweh describes his counselor, and, and who he is going to send in order to deliver them, and that is Christ. This is all a prophecy of Christ. And it actually continues in in the subsequent chapters. So Isaiah 41, it's Isaiah 41 that sets the context for Isaiah chapter 42. But Isaiah chapter 42 is perfectly clear that he's speaking to the captivity of the children of Israel. So, once again from Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 1. Because he doesn't change the subject. He's not talking to non-Israelites and then promising these things to the children of Israel. We shall see without doubt that it's the children of Israel who are the only subjects of this. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Now, Isaiah's words in the original manuscripts never break. He's been talking to Jacob and Israel all along. The chapter breaks were added a thousand years after the time of Christ by British churchmen. They were the first to add actual chapter numbers. So just because it's a new chapter doesn't mean it's a new subject. But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Right there, where we see reference to a redeemer, or the people being redeemed in chapter 42, we can't imagine that he means anybody else. So who else is called in the words of the law or the prophets? If no other race is called, then no other race can be of Christ. So next we read a promise of Israel's preservation in captivity. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, it shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Now, just as we proceed, we shall also see that Israel would be preserved at the expense of other nations. In verse 3, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. So how could we, right there, how could we imagine that Ethiopia, Egypt, or Sheba could possibly be saved or redeemed by Christ. That concept is absolutely contrary to these words. It's denied by these words.
Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable. I have loved thee. Therefore I will give men for thee and people for thy life. Finally, we see that Israel will ultimately be regathered to God, as we read from verse 5. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east. He's still speaking to Jacob and Israel. And gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. Who did God make? Right in the beginning of the chapter, in verse in verse 1, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. For So for some reason or another, Yahweh God was denying. He was not admitting being the creator of Egypt, Ethiopia, or Sheba. He was denying them. He gave them up. Once again, this gathering, mentioned here, bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 8. Once again, this gathering is in Christ, as it is he who shall make the blind of Israel to see and the deaf of Israel to hear. Speaking only of the children of Israel. Then we shall move on to Isaiah chapter 44 in verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. None of these words are for any other people, for any other race, for any other nation, regardless of where it uses the term nations. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee and formed thee from the womb. He keeps repeating this over and over until we finally get it. Those mixed nations Yahweh didn't create. They became mixed. He gave them up. He gave them up purposely. As Isaiah wrote this, Ethiopia, Sheba, and Egypt in history, you can look this up right on Wikipedia. It's right on Wikipedia. Those nations were overrun with Nubians at that very time. The Nubian invasion of Egypt is explained on Wikipedia in the history of ancient Egypt. Yet now hear, O Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. Jesurun means upright one in Hebrew. Yahweh considers the children of Israel to be his upright one, even if they were put off in sin. He's going to make them righteous, whether they like it or not. Then, in that chapter... In verse 2, Yahweh describes pouring water under the dry ground, which is actually a prophecy of the gospel of Christ, where we read, I'm sorry, in verse 3, I'm skipping, or I'm interrupting, I should say, 
He describes pouring water under the dry ground, and this actually is a prophecy of the gospel of Christ. So we read in verse 3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. That's done through his word. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. Seed and offspring are the same thing. This is a Hebrew parallelism. And his blessing and his seed come, I'm sorry, his blessing and his spirit are transmitted through his word, through the gospel. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses, speaking explicitly to the offspring of the children of Israel in captivity. So the water poured onto the dry ground is also a promise reserved to the children of Israel, to their offspring, and Christ spoke of such water in John chapter 4, where he compared it to literal water speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritan woman who professed to being a daughter of Jacob, and he never denied her that. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water, meaning the water in the well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's that word of the water poured in the desert in Isaiah chapter 44. Now, Isaiah reaffirms the identity of the children of Israel in relation to this messianic prophecy, because it's a clear messianic prophecy. Thus saith Yahweh, the king of Israel. This is Isaiah 44, verse 6. And his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and shall set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the Pope is trying to set it in order for him from every people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. God is challenging men to show what he's going to do with his ancient people. He's challenging them. And when they pretend to take up that they could take up that challenge, they're always going to fail. And once again, even in relation to Christ, only the children of Israel are the appointed, the chosen, the called. And the gospel is the metaphorical water which was promised to them alone. So when the uh, Pope claims that he's the church, he's robbing us of our identity, right? Being the children of Israel and only believers become the children of Israel, right? Yeah, and he's opposing God. He's opposing these words of God here in Isaiah chapter 44. He's standing in direct opposition. Who, as I, shall call and declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. Anybody who tries to bring 
a nigger into the assembly of God is opposing that because he says that he does the calling and that he declares it and that he sets it in order ever since he appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and the things that shall come. Let them show unto them. Of course, they can't. Only he can. This theme continues throughout Isaiah. So now we'll skip ahead. We'll read from Isaiah chapter 48. From verse 12. Hearken unto me. God's doing the calling. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel. My called. The Pope can have his own called, but they're not the called of God. Only Jacob, the children of Israel, are the called of God. Right there in black and white. Why do the churches don't believe this? Because they have some agenda? Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Nobody's going to change this. My hand also has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. So when the call comes, it is intended only for Jacob, only for the children of Israel, the ancient people. That is the call of Christianity. There was no other call than at the prophesying the destruction of Babylon, nearly a hundred years before the start of the Babylonian Empire. A few verses later in the chapter, we read from chapter from verse 15, chapter 48, I, even I, have spoken. Yeah, I called him. I have brought him. And he shall make his way prosperous. Come ye near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there I am. And now, Yahweh God and his spirit has sent me. Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh thy God, which teaches thee to profit, which leads thee by the way that thou should go. So here, in a messianic prophecy, Yahweh appealed to the children of Israel in captivity to come ye near unto me, hear ye this, and he declares that I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. But this is all still a mystery to the organized so-called churches, even after Paul of Tarsus had attested in his epistles that the secret was revealed in the apostles and prophets. They still try to claim it's a mystery. And it is no mystery. They are lying to advance their own agenda. Okay. So if you call your children for some reason. You got six kids. You go to the door. And you shout, come to dinner. Dinner's ready. You are not going to accept and take any other child. Who is not of your children. And give them dinner as they are someone else's children. What if you call six children to dinner and six strangers answer you so you feed them? 
Then when your own children arrive, there is nothing for them to eat. What mother would do that to her own children simply because they were late coming home? Neither shall Yahweh allow dogs to eat the bread of his children, as Christ attests in Matthew chapter 15. It's not going to happen. And likewise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, you, you know, in heaven, if if they saw all these other people who claiming to be Israel, they'd think, what the hell, yeah, you conned, conned us, Yahweh, you know, who the hell are these people? Right. I thought it was going to be my descendants. Well, when Abraham was told that his descendants would become many nations, he was credited because that is what he believed. In spite of the incredible odds against it, that is what he believed, and that's why Yahweh rendered him righteous. That's why Yahweh deemed him to be righteous, simply because he believed that. And the belief of that isn't reflected in something that came out of his mouth. It's reflected in the fact of his actions that he picked up and moved to the land of Canaan like Yahweh said that he should because that is where he would become, his children would become many nations. So at that point, did Abraham believe in niggers? Did Abraham believe that his offspring would be would be many niggers? Certainly not. Abraham believed that his offspring would become many nations just like himself. He never believed that niggers would be taken out of the jungles of Africa and India and, and Southeast Asia to be turned into his offspring. Abraham never believed that. And Yahweh never promised that. Yahweh promised that his offspring would be of his own seed and insisted on it. That's what Abraham believed, and that's why Abraham was accredited as being righteous. That's what I want to believe, so that I can also have that hope of being righteous. Because anything else is not the word of God. It's the word of some pope. Screw that pope. He's going to die just like the rest of us. He's not God. In Isaiah chapter 49, we see yet another address to Israel in captivity in another messianic prophecy of Christ. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people from afar. Yahweh has called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand he has hid me, and made me a polished shaft, in his quiver has he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That glorification came when the children of Israel accepted Yahshua Christ, because Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught. And in vain, yet surely, my judgment is with Yahweh, and my work with my God. And now, saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb, to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, because they were scattered abroad in captivity, 
Yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. Next we see, in the very next verse, another prophecy of the purpose of Christ. And he said, It is a like thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Children of Israel were supposed to be scattered to the ends of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to be a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of Yahweh that is faithful. Now, if Yahweh is faithful, then he's keeping and not changing the promises to the patriarchs. If he's not keeping the promises to the patriarchs, then he's not faithful. Because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, speaking of the children of Israel. These nations and kings are the nations and kings of the children of Israel. The twelve tribes scattered abroad to whom Paul was purposed to bring the gospel of Christ in accordance with the promises to Abraham. And um, Bill, technically, wouldn't every male be a king of his own household, right? That That's how at least how it should be, right? But it's not now with the government ruling over us. Right. Every man should be a king and a priest. He should rule his own household according to the commandments so that he could be an honest servant of God, an honest and righteous servant of God. And that's why the children of Israel were promised in the beginning that they would be a nation of kings and priests. It doesn't say a nation with kings and priests. It says a nation of kings and priests. The original government of the children of Israel, which Yahweh God had set up after the time of the Exodus, was the judges period. The period of David and Solomon, even if David and Solomon were wonderful, godly men who obeyed God, even if they were all that, they were the wisest men that ever lived in everything that we could say good about David and Solomon. That was not the kingdom of God. The kingdom which he decreed is the judges period where every man ruled his own house for better or for worse because men sinned back then also, and judges were appointed, and the judges were to settle disputes between men. Because men aren't perfect, they're going to sometimes argue. And even in the kingdom of God, according to Christ himself, the apostles, the prophets, would sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of the house of Israel as Christ himself had said. So even in the kingdom of God, it is apparent that men 
being men, will still require judges. That being said, the ideal kingdom is that each man rules his own house, each man is the priest of his own house, and only God is our collective king. Only our God is going to rule over us. That's the model kingdom set up in the judges period. That's the model of the coming kingdom. Once we overthrow and overcome these devils who rule the world today. One man should never rule over another man. Only God can rule us. If we remember 1 Samuel chapter 8, the children of Israel demanded an earthly king. So God gave them a king and also told them how much they were going to suffer because they demanded an earthly king. And then they still screwed up. They still sinned until they were put out in captivity. So in Hosea chapter 13, Yahweh speaks to the children of Israel and says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I, and this is as they were being put off in captivity, and Hosea wrote at the same time that Isaiah began to write, about 740 B.C., roughly, I will be their king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges, of whom thou said, this is a reference to First Samuel chapter 8, and thy judges, of whom thou said, give me a king and princes. So, we read in the next verse, I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. There we have it. That sums it up in a nutshell right there. Only Christ can be king. Only God himself can be our king. We should never seek an earthly king. So the kingdom of David was what was a kingdom that was implemented on account of the sins of the children of Israel. It was not the kingdom which was ordained by God that we find in the judges period. But that's all by God's plan so that we recognize the fact that we can only be ruled over by God and that each of us must be obedient to God. And if we are ever going to have a true godly kingdom. I'm sorry. You had something to say, maybe? No, no and that's um, what we've essentially, we ended up in the, um, you know, once the Catholic Church fell, the past few centuries we had kind of a second opportunity, right? Like the judges period where we had no kings. But this time uh, we've ended up with Jews ruling over us, right? So, so even worse than uh, un, under the David and Solomon, and worse under the judges, right? Every time we try to do it our own way, we only fall further down, right? Well, well, right, because we had an opportunity to have godly kingdoms, but instead we became ruled by gold because we sought gold because too many of the children of Israel sought riches for themselves rather than seeking God. And today we, we live in this individualistic society 
where everybody as an individual simply wants to enrich themselves and, and look out for their own interests and have no care for their own community or even for their own kin in many examples. They only care for business, for making money. And the whole world is being regulated around that. So finally, we read in Matthew chapter 15, the words of Christ, where he said, I am not sent but unto, which means only for, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then in John chapter 10, But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. How can men replace the sheep, those whom the shepherd had said that he would call, with animals of other sorts or with people of other races? You're attempting to pull a fast one on God. Because he clearly, throughout the those chapters of Isaiah, he clearly told us time and time again who he was going to call, who he had chosen, and all in connection with messianic prophecies, prophecies of Christ, clear prophecies of Christ, explicit prophecies of Christ. I am your Redeemer. I am your Savior. How can we imagine that Christ came for anyone else outside of the words of the prophet? Where is it written in the prophets? It's not anywhere. And here a digression is necessary. And we must discuss a claim which has been made for the last 1500 years and which has prevailed with many, but which is not true. And there's three points to this claim, as I have illustrated it here. The Roman Pope cult, because that's what it is. The emperors had their cults, and people built temples to the emperors and worshipped the emperors. The Pope is no different. The Roman Pope cult claims that there has been an unbroken chain of succession, from Peter and Paul through a line of bishops of Rome down to today and also claims that its authority is from Peter, as they further claim that Peter is the rock upon which the Roman Catholic Church was built. But first, an examination of history would reveal that the first claim is a lie. The early bishops of Rome were all martyred in the persecutions, and most later bishops were mere political opportunists. Accounts of the bishops of Rome varied among later Christian writers. And there was no organization to preserve accurate documentation of the earliest history of the Church of Rome. Then, an examination of scripture, including Paul's epistles, revealed that the second claim is also a lie. When Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans in 57 AD, he had not ever visited Rome. Yet there were at least several Christian Ecclesiahi, or assemblies, in various houses, and never once in that epistle did he address or mention a bishop. Paul did not write to one true church at Rome, 
which is Roman Catholic propaganda, but rather he wrote to all those in Rome who are beloved of God, called saints, Romans chapter 1 verse 7, who were actually distributed among several different assemblies or churches, for which we may see Romans chapter 16 verse 5. And that is as they were in other places also. For example, in Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1, Galatians chapter 1 verse 2. In the book of Acts, in chapter 28, when Paul arrived at Rome, many of the circumcision, the prominent Judeans of the city, came out to see him as if they had not yet heard the gospel from an apostle, but had only heard the many negative things which were being spread concerning Christianity by the Romans. So we read where Paul said to them, Therefore, for this reason, I have summoned you to see and speak to you. For because of the hope of Israel, I am wrapped in this chain. Then Luke records their answer, where we read, But they said to him, We have not received letters from the Judeans concerning you, nor have any of the brethren arriving reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we think it worthy to hear from you the things which you think, since concerning this sect, referring to Christianity, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So where was Peter? These are the elders of the Judeans that Paul explicitly sent for. Where was Peter? He certainly was not preaching in Rome up to that time, or they being the leaders of the circumcised could not have avoided him since his mission was to the circumcised. So Peter wasn't in Rome up to this time. That's a Roman Catholic lie. The churches at Rome, to which Peter had written, were themselves independent of these men whom Paul had summoned. Nowhere, in his epistles or in Acts, did Paul ever recognize any single leader of Roman Christians. A local ecclesia an assembly or Christian community answers to no religious authority except the word of God. Yeah, so, so Bill, if you wanted to have power and you wasn't, um, you know, a senator or part of a noble family or you didn't have wealth, then one way centuries later would be to go through the church, right? If you could um, be an, uh, appointed with by the authority of Rome as the bishop of a community, it gave you tremendous power, right? So it's naturally going to attract um, not all, but some people who lust for power, right, and want power over people, right? Absolutely. There were only two routes to power if you were a common man, and that's through the military or through a priesthood. So if you could get in the door as a, as a Christian priest, which there was never other ever supposed to be such a thing, if you get in the door as a Christian priest, yes, eventually you might gain a bishopric if you were ambitious, and, and if you studied at least a little bit, because at least 
most Christian priests had to know something about the scripture in order to get by. They didn't know much, honestly. A lot of them didn't know much at all, and that's evident in the medieval period. But, especially the priests, because they had to know more. The Roman Catholic priests, they had to know their rituals. They had to know to recite a mass in Latin. Because they only used Latin right up to about the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. They only used Latin. So you had to learn enough Latin to recite a Mass. And perhaps you didn't even know the meanings to have the words, as long as you knew how to recite the Mass. And you had to know the rituals and, and the, the, the church organization and its laws. You didn't have to know the Bible, marginally perhaps, but not really. Okay. Neither do we know if Peter was ever in Rome at the time that the assemblies to which Paul had written were founded, a time which must have been earlier than when Paul had written to them. While someone must have brought Christianity to Rome well before 57 AD, we are never informed who it was that had founded the assemblies there. Peter was the apostle to the circumcision. The assemblies at Rome contained both Judeans and Greeks, as we are informed by Paul's epistle, and Peter was still in Jerusalem as late as 53 AD, where he then met Paul in Antioch. And then he was in Babylon some years later, where he wrote the two epistles of his which had survived. He wrote them from Babylon. The circumstances of those epistles show that they were probably written after the time of Paul's arrest, and that Peter was not yet in Rome, as I had wrote, written in a March 2012 commentary on Peter, and I will quote one paragraph. The editors, and this commentary was at the beginning of my commentary on Second Peter, the editors of the volumes of the Ante-Nicene Fathers, Translations of the Writings of the Fathers down to 325 A.D., the Anti-Nicene Fathers are those from before the Council of Nicaea, which I believe was in 330, perhaps. Those volumes state that the Roman imprisonment and martyrdom of St. Peter seem historical. And that is possible. But it still does not prove that Peter founded the Roman church or that he was in Rome at an early time. Something for which there is no authentic evidence at all and which the book of Acts, as I've just explained, and the epistle of Paul to the Romans seem to refute. It makes more sense that Peter was in Rome later, if at all, since the Gospel of Mark contains some Latin words and therefore may have been written for a Greek-speaking Roman audience. And I believe that's true because the Gospel of Mark contains Latin words. But if we examine the Latin words, all of the Latin words in Mark have to do with measurements or coins. So he's writing in Greek because most Romans spoke Greek. But when he has a measurement or a coin, he often chose to use the Latin term.
for the measurement or the coin. Measurements of volume. Yeah, we actually get miles from Romans, right? The word for miles, I believe so. I believe so, yes. I'm not 100% positive. Mark didn't use the term for miles, I'm sure. Usually measurements of volume or coins are in Latin terms in Mark's Gospel, while he was writing in Greek. So that's an oddity, but to me it demonstrates that Mark was most likely in Rome because he was writing for a Roman audience. So, if he was in the East, he probably would not have done that, in my opinion. He would have used the Greek terms for, for those measurements. That being said, the what we know from many early Christian writers, that it was Peter's testimonies which Mark had later recorded. And that was only, according to some early Christian writers, with much persuasion. In other words, Peter didn't plan to write a gospel. Mark wrote it for him. Mark wrote Peter's gospel. And I believe that. I believe that's accurate. And Mark is with Peter when he wrote his first epistle in Babylon. So, that being said, the earlier Clement, if indeed the citations are accepted as being original, and I'm referring to Clement of Rome, the earlier Clement has Peter preaching and martyred in Rome. The later Irenaeus has Peter and Paul, quote-unquote, laying the foundations of the church there. And as early as Eusebius, the claim is made that Peter and Paul founded the church, the singular word for church, in Rome. Therefore, the Catholic tradition developed over the centuries, but it was not at all original. The editors of the Antinicene Fathers also demonstrate that there were indeed some Roman Catholic interpolations of the works of Cyprian, where his writing seems to support later Roman church doctrines found to be fraudulent through a comparison of older manuscripts. So the Romans were willing to change the writings of the early Christian writers in order to uphold their own lies. But whether Peter was ever in Rome is also immaterial, because furthermore, the third claim is also a lie. Peter had, Peter was not the rock upon which the church was built. That's a huge lie. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we see that Joshua Christ had changed Simon's name to Peter. In truth, he didn't really change his name. Christ only added to Simon the name Peter, as Christ himself had continued to call him Simon on later occasions. For example, in John chapter 21, he called him Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, three times. And the other apostles also continued to call him Simon on occasion, even though they called him Peter and Cephas. I'll get to Cephas in a moment. So while the addition of Peter to his name is also mentioned in Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, and John chapter 1, only Matthew's gospel has the statements attributed to Christ in 
chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, where we read, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When you read the Christogenia New Testament, it will say, I say also unto thee that thou art a stone, I believe it says. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Interpreting this passage, there is an important distinction made at which the apologists for the cult of the Pope only scoff. Where Christ had said, Thou art Peter. He used the Greek word Petrus. And where he said, Upon this rock I will build my church. He used the Greek word Petra. And there is a huge difference. In fact, where it says, Thou art Peter, there isn't even a definite article. And no definite article means that Christ was only saying, Thou art a stone. And the apostles took it upon themselves to begin to call him Peter, or Petrus. The significant distinction between Petrus and Petra is lost in the King James translation. Ludell and Scott defined Petrus as a stone distinguished from Petra, and Petra as a rock, a ledge, or a shelf of rock. Properly, Petra is a fixed rock, Petrus a stone. So, consequently, we would translate this portion of verse 18 to read, You are a stone, yet upon this bedrock I will build my assembly in order to properly maintain the distinction. We cannot imagine that Christ had referred to the most stubborn of the apostles, one who was quick to argue with him as a bedrock foundation for his church. Christ himself is the only true foundation. And even the King James Version has stone for Petrus in John chapter 1, verse 42, where we read, And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is, by interpretation, a stone. So the other apostles didn't record it, but when Christ called him that, he actually used the Hebrew term, and it was only translated by the others. But it was mentioned and interpreted by John. Later, Paul of Tarsus would often use that Hebrew term, Cephas, to refer to Peter. Certainly Peter, as he had become known, is but a stone and is not the rock upon which Christ builds his ecclesia, or assembly. Even Peter recognized this distinction where in his own epistle he in turn called his readers living stones and referred to Yahshua Christ as the chief cornerstone. 
1 Peter chapter 2. So while we do not know to what it was that Christ had contrasted Peter, where he said, upon this bedrock I will build my assembly, we can infer that the bedrock was Christ himself. Paul described Yahshua Christ as the foundation of his own building in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Then the authority which was given to to Peter by Christ in Matthew chapter 16 verse 19, the same authority was also given to the other disciples as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 18 verse 18. So Peter didn't hold that authority exclusively. So basically, uh, Yahweh God is was building His foundation uh, in in His upon Yahshua, which is Him it, uh, as a man, right? And that's the foundation of Christianity, uh, and we're all uh, stones on that foundation, right? Exactly, and that's what Peter acknowledged in chapter two of his first epistle. For no other foundation can man lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus. That's Paul of Tarsus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. He didn't try to say that the foundation was Peter. That would be idolatry. Even if in Ephesians, he says that the assembly is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So that would mean that all of the apostles had the same authority. And that would also refute the Roman Catholic Church. Because they claimed to be, the, the Church of Rome, the Bishop of Rome claimed to be first among the churches. But that's not true if all of the apostles had the same authority as Paul implies in Ephesians chapter 2. And that means that the churches that Paul founded in Asia, would have the same authority as the Roman church. How could the Roman church exalt itself above the churches of Asia or the churches anywhere else? Okay. The foundation of the city of God are the same stones that we find in the breastplate of the high priest, and we see that they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. That's another story. In the Revelation, Yahshua Christ sent messages to seven different assemblies, all independent and not to one true church. Revelation chapter 1 verse 11. And Rome was not even considered among those seven churches. Rome had no recognition by name in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. You'd think he would have mentioned it if Rome was supposed to be the one true church. Rome was not even considered among those churches. The Roman Pope really derived his power and his authority from the edicts of Justinian, armed with the so-called forged, the, the forged so-called donation of Constantine, which is proven to be a forgery. And it used those circumstances to promote itself and to gain dominion over all of the Christian assemblies of the Roman world, and later of the entire European world. 
It persecuted all those who refused to prostrate themselves before it. And to this day, it is only a tool for the dragon in his war against the woman, the children of Israel, who are the true church. In reality, the Roman church is built on the bones of the saints. It's the the Roman church is the subject of prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And in Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. And in Revelation chapter 12 verse 17. So it's figuratively and literally built upon the bones of the saints. Because the cult, and it's a cult. The cult's foremost temple called St. Peter's Basilica is built upon a large necropolis. It's actually built upon an ancient cemetery. It's built on the bones of the saints. A cemetery which is known to have been a Christian necropolis. So so first it slaughtered um the Christians and then when it when it wasn't gonna win it instead tried to corrupt Christianity and then rule over it as a pagan priesthood essentially, right? And that's the entire development of the Roman Catholic Church in a nutshell, yes. Once it was accepted by the Empire, it was corrupted. Because the Empire organized it the way that the Empire wanted to organize it. Under a single emperor or pope. A pope that became, essentially, the emperor. Because he was more powerful. Even though the, even though Byzantine, Byzantium still had an emperor in name, the pope became more powerful. And the popes later appointed the Holy Roman Emperors, which is another different story. The true Ecclesia is that body of true Israelites, Christian Israelites or Israelite Christians, either in the world or in any particular community, depending on the scope of the context in which the word is used. They are called the Ecclesia, whether or not they happen to be currently assembled together. As we saw in Isaiah chapter 49, that Israel was called, even though Israel be not gathered. In the New Testament, there are references to the Ecclesia when they were not gathered. First, in Acts chapter 8, we read, For Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, the ecclesia, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. The word church there is ecclesia, but Saul, which is the name Luke had used for Paul when he was still working for the temple rulers in Jerusalem, had found the ecclesia at their homes, in their houses, not at some church building. So the ecclesia is not a church in the sense of a building or organization. As a digression, the word church comes into English through German, but was derived from the Greek word kuriakos. In German, it's a kirka. Kyriakos is a genitive form of the word curious, or Lord, which means of the Lord. In the sense of the children of Israel, that application may not be incorrect, but it is certainly wrong if it is applied to peoples other than Israel, or to some building or organization. 
A church may possess a building, but a building cannot ever be a church. Continuing our examples where the word ecclesia describes a class of people and not an organization or building, in Acts chapter 9, it speaks of Paul after his conversion. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. Now, the Grecians weren't necessarily Greeks. They were Judeans who were Hellenists, who followed Greek philosophy and Greek customs. And Josephus explains that. So he disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Which, when the brethren do, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches, or ecclesiahi, plural of ecclesia, rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, they were multiplied. Now, unfortunately, the word for churches in the majority text is plural. But in the ancient Greek manuscripts in that passage, it is singular. There were no buildings that were called churches in those days, and no organization called a church. So the word ecclesia was used to describe the body of Christians, even though it was scattered in diverse places. Finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul wrote, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and it is evident that they, the people, are the church, or ecclesia, even when they are not gathered anywhere. So it should be evident that the modern so-called churches, buildings owned and operated by large incorporated organizations, who allow anyone of any race to participate, are really just synagogue or synagogues, while the true ecclesia consists of the children of Israel, and the word does not describe a building or organization. It describes those who were called and chosen, those who were predestinated and foreknown can only be called and chosen. It is true, however, that a local ecclesia should be organized as it is described in the New Testament, but not in the way of the popes of Rome. And I won't get into that here. It's beyond our purposes. The pope cannot call anyone to Christ as Yahweh has already done the calling and has assured us that he has only called the children of Israel. So, once again, that is why the apostles of Christ brought that gospel to white Europeans. The people of white Christian Europe are also the saints. And next, we shall define that term in our next proof. The Pope cannot make men into saints, but some men and women already are saints. It's again uh, robbing us of um, that privilege, right? And uh, transferring the power of God to, to the Pope who can uh, pick and choose and exile you from the church and bring you back, and etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's why he's described as a beast in Revelation chapter 13. Yeah. 
Um, Bill, um, just going back to the Nubia innovation, just had a quick question. Nubia was actually um, technically just a part of Ethiopia, right, or, or the Kush kingdom. So that must have they must have been bringing in niggers for quite a while until it just deteriorated, and then eventually those mingled people overrun Egypt and Seba, right? That ostensibly is what seems to have happened because the politics of the time are not very well recorded. It is difficult to determine exactly how it happened. But the people who were said to have invaded Egypt were classified as Nubians. They probably were a mixed multitude because even the Egyptians had been race mixing with Nubians on the borders of, of on their southern borders for, for many centuries. There were pharaohs that had harems of Nubians in the south of Egypt. So, uh, I mean, sin has been around a long time, and, and evidently so has oil drilling, just not for petroleum. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, I imagine by that time they had, um, you know, ships where they could sail down the coast of uh, Africa or go down the river and bring back slaves, right? And um, it's always doomed, even if it takes, you know, a few hundreds of, well, few centuries, even three, four, five cent. eventually they're going to start race mixing, right, with the general population. I forget the details, but Clifton had uncovered writings about a 19th century French archaeologist who had in turn written that the Arabs were trading slaves into Southeast Asia in China as early as 750 the 8th century BC. I forget where Clifton wrote about that, but he did write about it. It is on his website somewhere. Yeah, except the Chinese understood and castrated them, right, to prevent them their blood ever going in, but well, it seems it did eventually, right, because there are dark Asians. Yes, it seems that the uh, Arab and Negro blood did eventually get into Southeast Asia because there are very dark Asians and, and there is a sampling of people who display those traits, those biological traits. It can't be mistaken. I, I, I theorize that perhaps that's where the Aborigines had come from, but that's impossible to tell. It's impossible to tell how long they've been there. I don't trust carbon dating. That's for certain. That's used for political purposes as well. Or, or to push the evolutionary agenda. Okay, I think that's a wrap. And thank you for being here once again. Thanks for having me as always. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thanks, Bill. Praise Yahweh. And good night.